Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everyone. Producer Dan Mayday here with something a bit different for you in the feed today. This episode was recorded in December 2022 with Dr. Nadini Pandey, and her students in first-year seminar, Race Before Race, Ethnic Difference in the Ancient Mediterranean at Johns Hopkins University. The course is taught out of the classics department, but students of all disciplines are welcome to enroll as they do not declare majors until the end of their first year at JHU. Students were invited to join this recording as an alternative course assignment. In the episode, you'll hear Lexi and myself discuss with the class their preconceived notions before the course, things they wish they could tell future students, deconstructing classics, perspectives on how the ancient world intersects with their modern interests, and, of course, a reading of the poem Ozymandias by the whole class. If you are an educator, or even a student, interested in working with the Ozymandias Project in your classroom, please reach out to us via email at theozymandiasprojectnfp at gmail.com. Or, if you want to support our work, please give the podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, share an episode with a friend, or follow our social media. Links to all these will be in the show notes. Since I have talked you up to Dan and Lexi, who are the producers and runners of the Ozymandias Project, it's a really special podcast, and I encourage you all um, to check it out, give it a listen during your winter breaks when you can finally get some breathing room after your, your busy first semester of college. But I'm so glad you're here because they are, have very kindly, they interviewed me earlier this semester, and then I was telling them how wonderful you all are and how much fun I've had with our class, and they left at the chance to do a podcast with you. So uh, maybe I'll just kind of lurk in the background. I'm going to sign off before too long so everyone can speak freely, but do you do you guys want to introduce yourselves and the project and what you want to do today? Thank you so much. It's such an honor to, to be featured by you. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Uh, Lexi, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. A little background on me. I got my bachelor's in classics. I graduated 2018 from the University of Missouri. Thank you. Thank you. And I basically made the decision not to continue on into a career within the field, but I still wanted to remain tangentially close to the field. So I actually started my career in politics. And then when I didn't have enough interaction with the ancient world, I basically made the decision to start the podcast to basically give me a way to stay connected to the people and the friends that I've made along the way. And I couldn't have sort of imagined the ways that the show would grow and the the new connections I would make. So this is just sort of very happy path that I found myself on. And so I just finished a master's degree abroad in Athens, Greece, and that's in Southeast European studies. It's a modern political science program. That's awesome. And we have, there's many um, scientists in the room and future doctors, but we also have a few potential politicians or international people, maybe Abhishek or MZ, (laughs) several of you. So it's really inspiring to hear more about a career like yours, which can go, you can go in so many directions from classics and you're such a shining star to us all. And Dan, do you want to, do you want to say hi? And then I promise I will stop. So I am Dan Mayday. My background is in the exciting world of industrial organizational psychology so many syllables. What's that mean? 
uh, work psychology. I started the workplace and what I specialize in is learning and training and development. With the Ozymandias project, I am the behind the scenes guy running all the business stuff. I edit the podcast, do a lot of design things, and I love making curriculum and lesson plans and activities and other things like that. I'm the one person who uh, gets excited for course evaluations. <laughs> Which is a good reminder to everyone. <laughs> Please do uh, submit your course evaluations because actually at Hopkins, they tie them to getting your grades so that students all have to write evaluations for their courses before they can view their grades. But of course, they're such wonderful tools for us to learn what's going well and what could be improved. Great <laughs> bounce on that. <laughs> Please advocate for course evals. And, and really, I can't advocate for y'all now. They're anonymous. They won't affect your grade at all. But as instructors, it helps us so, so much because we simply don't know what we don't know. And you can tell us because you're in the class. That's a great kind of framework going into today because part of the activity we have to go through is a time capsule. We want to know what you wish you knew going into this class. And part of this is we will be giving that to other students. Now, if you want to be anonymous, if you want to have your voice filtered, you can certainly do that. But odds are you probably are going to be happy giving advice to them and you can be perhaps even more creative in your course evals if that's how you wish to do in writing. But you think about this as just that, a time capsule. And the cool thing we'll be doing here is changing the script a little bit today. So we will be not only sharing these messages that you have for students in the next course year, but we're going to try to follow up with you in a year or so and see where you're at, how this class has affected you. And you'll have a chance to listen back to what you said and see how far you've come. I can't tell any of you how things are going to change, but I can guarantee for each and every one of you here, your life is going to look a lot different in a year. That's the beauty of college. <laughs> so just a few quick things outside of all of that. I also work in corporate America doing training and development. I've worked a lot with the United Nations, both simulated and real. Uh, aside from podcasting, I also work with some indie games. So we said before we have time towards the end of our session today for any questions you have for myself or Lexi. And these can be super specific. Uh, if they are something that might appear on exam, Lexi, she's the content expert. But if it's something that's more akin to what's grad school like? What should I need to know for applying to the job? I'm thinking about going into this field. What should I watch out for? What's, you know, a growing area? Those are all great. Some I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to have expertise on. So if you're wondering about how the competitive world of podiatry is, I'm not your guy. But I can at least give you some general things there if it's not too hyper specific. Well, this sounds great. And I think that I will shortly drop off and let everyone speak freely. But I just want to thank you and Lexi both so much for this opportunity for my class. We have a wonderful turnout here. As the students know, this is kind of standing in for a final exam, but I think it'll be a lot more fun for them to think back through what they've learned from this class, what they brought to it, and how they're how they're leaving it. And to me, the best thing about this class has been all of the people here in this room, because they truly made it just such a wonderful experience. I will just thank you all for an amazing semester. It's been my honor and privilege to work with you, you know, some of the th stuff that we've learned together. So it's been just a great pleasure. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Good luck on your final projects. I hope you've met with your peer pair and exchanged comments, but I will really look forward to that. And maybe if you have time, you can tell our wonderful hosts a little bit more about what you're working on and where you plan to take the ideas from this course. But thank you again all so much for being here for a wonderful semester. Stay healthy, stay well, happy holidays. And I will be in touch by email with further instructions about how to submit your final projects. I miss you all already very much. Thank you. Thank you. Great. I'm going to go ahead and post these questions here in the chat for us. We actually have seven questions total we'll be going through. But the first one is the big one for everyone. In just a sentence or two, what advice would you give a new student before starting this class? And did you have any preconceived notions going into the class that may have changed? And uh, this can be very specific. It can be very general. This is Easter, and my preconceived notions were that the Greeks and the Romans were white, or what we think is white in modern day, like the modern day definition of race. Um, but that has completely changed, as well as my knowledge on the opinions of different races during that time. Great, thanks for sharing. And uh, just while we have you, do you have your advice you give to you know, a new student or yourself if you can go back? just to keep an open mind because for the majority of the time I didn't really understand uh, what the class was trying to teach you so 
just to keep an open mind, really. Got it. So thank you for sharing. Uh, who would you like to go next? Yeah, sure. I can go next. My name is Abhishek Das. Like one piece of advice I'd have for people that are like starting this class newly during discussions, you can like connect things to the modern world in a lot of ways and create like a lot of analogies. And that's something that I did a lot in this class. And I found like they pretty like it made the discussion a lot, like made it like more interesting. And I think that was pretty helpful for me. Any preconceived notions in terms of that? I think I just thought that we'd be doing like a ton of reading and like almost like a very like lecture type class, but it was a lot more discussion based than I thought. Thank you. And uh, I'll just say as an educator myself, somebody who teaches other educators, we love discussions far more than lecture. We don't want to just talk at you. Y'all can go on YouTube and watch somebody who's already pre-recorded something. You can read Wikipedia. There's ways of just getting info dumped at you. The discussion is where we can bring you together and really help navigate that conversation, fill in the gaps, point you towards where there are questions. Not all your professors will have that same mindset going forward. Ask those questions. This is a safe place to make mistakes, to learn things, and I guarantee it's going to be a lot more engaging and entertaining for everybody else in your class, too, the more you're able to talk with each other. Hello, my name is Sul Cooper. So basically, um, sort of advice that I would give students is, like, don't be afraid to relate what you learn in class to your own personal experiences or things that you have seen in today's world because you can also make a lot of connections that can help you engage with the material more and just make it more of an interesting class uh, from my experience. In regards to any preconceived notions, I would say that I never really looked at like conflicts like the Trojan War, these Mediterranean conflicts, like along the lens of different ethnic groups and like tribes, like having conflicts. I never really thought about it in a way to like think about race craft in the beginning of like, the birth of race. And it's kind of interesting how we see that history and necessarily like where certain like ideas of race fit in and where it doesn't fit in. Yeah. My name is Daniel. And uh, one piece of advice I give to students starting this class is get ready for a huge variety of different things that you look at. I mean, we looked at ancient poems. We looked at architecture, statues, paintings. And I definitely came in thinking it was going to be like a primarily uh, literature focused class, but we looked at so much more and just like open yourself up to all of that. And a preconceived notion, notion I had going into this class was that discrimination based off of color was an inherent thing in civilization throughout history. But the entire point of our class was kind of debunking that myth and tracing it back to its roots. Excellent. Thanks for sharing. We think of the ancient world as often what we think we can see, but it's much more than that. So that's an excellent insight. My name is Chloe. And one advice I would give is that to just be prepared to read for homework, because a lot of our homework was just like reading and then in class we'd discuss it. So then we'd have to like space out the reading and make sure we're not, there's not too much work in one day before the class. And then preconceived notions. I would say I always thought of race as just like ethnicity and like skin color for some reason. And I feel like that's a modern worldview. And then in the beginning of our class, we defined race as a tool for population management. And in that way, it kind of broadened race craft and race up into like, not just skin color, not just ethnicity, but also like, especially in antiquity, like class, um, religion, that kind of thing. Uh, my name is MZ Morgenstern. And so one piece of advice I would give is just to recognize that Historical truth is very complex and that by bringing in counterexamples, by interjecting, you're actually getting closer to the truth and within the classroom, within the group discussions. I and mean, it's not necessarily, you know, disagreeing. It's understanding that history doesn't have like one clear narrative, rather that, you know, two examples can be true that kind of show two different things. And that just brings you closer to the historical truth, which is complex. And in terms of uh, a preconceived notion that I had that changed, I would say that I sort of had this idea that People were very closed-minded for a long time. People were sort of racist and backwards, and that it was only in the last few centuries, you know, post-Enlightenment, that we started to become more open-minded, more culturally relativistic, etc. But in reading some ancient sources, we saw that, you know, there are authors and thinkers like Herodotus, who over 2,000 years ago were really thinking about other cultures uh, in very positive terms and being very um, relativistic and, and, and recognizing that there were many great people around the world. And so, yeah, I just recognized that that wasn't some sort of a linear progression, but rather that there have always been open-minded people, and there have always been closed-minded people, and it still is that way. I'm Joanne, and like an advice that I would give to a new student would be to 
be open to the reading, even though you don't understand it. There's a lot to gain, even if you're not fully understanding the plot or the characters, just such as just looking at the hidden narrative and like certain word choices in translation, since you can't always trust what the translator says because they may also have some inherent bias in their word choice. The preconceived notion that I had going into the class was that I thought we would be like delving into like Greek myths and Roman myths since to be honest, that's the reason why I chose the class in the first place, because I was just like, I'm ready to learn about like Hercules and Jason. But I learned a lot about just like the presence of race and how it started in the Mediterranean or how it's used nowadays from the ancient Mediterranean. And so, yeah. Hi, I'm Becca. Kind of similar to what Joanne's saying, I think a lot of the times some of the text was you it almost seemed very obvious what it was saying but then when you looked at the context and you really analyzed it you're like oh this isn't at all what it's saying it's saying something completely different and oftentimes that gets twisted and so actually looking into it and looking at the complete text or maybe sometimes we couldn't look at the complete text but trusting what the professors were having to say and looking at what they've said previously can really help to actually discover the meaning. So I think that's really helpful. And then in terms of preconceived notions, I think that before this class, um, maybe not consciously, but I definitely thought of like Greek and Roman society or like society as definitely an isolated endeavor. I didn't really see it kind of interacting with other cultures, other societies, other countries, other peoples. And I think as we learned in this class, they definitely did and it actually impacted them one day we went into our like our archaeological museum and we looked in egypt they had like these portraits on their like a funeral and it was actually used like wood from a different i think it was like greece i think it just it's just an example of like interactions that these uh like nations or societies are having hi my name is bethel and an advice that i would give to next year's students is to really manage your time with the reading and also to schedule a portion of your day to conceptually understand the readings. Also to look at the readings from like different point of view. So if you were to read something, try to see like where the author is really coming from, how they say it so that you can connect with them on a different level. And a preconceived notion is that we would just be like reading, looking at the writer's techniques and so how they employed it throughout the book, whereas we like learned about the people in the background and we learned the point of view where the author like looked at it from so that we could also understand where they're coming from and the people who are really in the background. Hi, my name is Josue. And an advice that I would give students is like not to go into a class similar to what John said, just thinking that we're going to learn about like Greeks and Romans, because I was actually kind of scared when we like started reading um, the Odyssey, or I believe it was, you know, the Iliad first. And I had no idea about like Greek mythology or like any of the gods or anything. And I was like, I thought that I would inhibit my like learning experience, but it actually like made it better because I was able to learn just reading ancient texts with a different perspective than most people do. Just trying to like broaden the view and like not only focus on like the main, I guess, people in the story, but also like those that their voices aren't heard, such as like slaves or servants or I guess inferior people as they're crafted in the text. So that was a really interesting take on that. And I guess a preconceived notion as well is that I thought that classics was solely just Greek and Roman people, but being able to learn about a variety, you know, just a survey of people such as we've been like Ethiopians, we learned about part on the Jewish people. We did like a bunch of like, you know, we did some Orientalism. We just kind of like picked that like different groups. And I thought that that was really enriching. And definitely for it being my first classic class, my first class in this field, I think it really just laid a very strong foundation of the, the field in general. Yeah. Thank you. My name is Jessica, and I think my advice to students is very similar to Becca's in just that it's very important to consider the context in which the readings were written and the narrator behind the words and like the biases this might create. Before this class, I don't think I ever considered how we as a society had come to understand race in its present day context and its ever evolving definition in history and how it's changed a lot depending on what's going on. 
and it's been invented it's been reinvented in like the past couple centuries by those in power and how it's like affected how we use it today thank you everyone yeah there's a lot of great themes we're seeing across here a lot of what's already happened is still very relevant today Becca and others have mentioned a lot of these societies you thought oh the Greeks or the Romans were the only thing in the world at that time and clearly they weren't there's entire other societies that not only were there but they interacted with each other thank you for all this really looking forward to seeing how the next class of students will take this and use it for themselves and hopefully when we can follow up with you in about a year or so where you're at and how things have changed even more and one thing I do want to add from what I was hearing is I do love everything you guys had to contribute. I think it's very interesting. And this would have been a class that I totally would have wanted to take when I was doing my undergrad. So you guys are very lucky to have a great professor who will teach you this class. But one thing I do want to stress is that when thinking solely of the field of classics itself, it is actually just Greece and Rome. And I think part of why this class is exceptional is because in reaching beyond what is the traditional confines, let's say, of the field, it's basically a way to show you that the study of the ancient world should be completely interdisciplinary. Studying the ancient Egyptians, the Etruscans, all these other people in all these regions around the Mediterranean, you know, this in itself is an argument for expanding and maybe classics shouldn't be just classics it should be ancient mediterranean studies to incorporate the fact that it's very interdisciplinary then again also that goes to show how kind of closed off this field really is so i do like kind of where that's headed because that does tie into our next set of questions does it not dan if everyone would like to answer you're welcome to these might be some long answers so don't feel pressure anyone who would like to answer these go ahead and moving to our next question the article that we have asked you to review, which we heard that you've read at the beginning of your semester, it was a New York Times feature on Professor Dan L. Padilla Peralta of Princeton University. So this next question is basically going to be based off of this article. Padilla Peralta believes that classics is structurally inaccessible for marginalized communities. If we were to deconstruct classics tomorrow, what would you knock down first? And what would be most important to build anew? And I'm going to popcorn this to anyone who would like to answer that question. Okay. Hi, Becca. Actually, this reminded me, I was looking the other way the other day, probably to procrastinate, to be honest, some of my many essays. And I was looking at like things that classic majors all understand. And at the end, it was talking about how it was like, Rome you're like you'll want to be in Rome society and you'll like want the aqueducts and it was like a total romanticization of Roman society and totally unrealistic but it was written by a classics professor so this was being perpetuated not just by someone who doesn't know what they're talking about someone who just like reads mythology like Joanne also loves <laughs> Greek mythology but it's written by someone who's in theory like gotten a doctorate who knows this field and who is still like perpetuating this idea of romanticization of the classics of Greek and Roman society. And it's so it totally demeans kind of what was actually going on. And I think that's something that I would definitely want to be knocked down. Um, I think it just doesn't, it, well, first of all, it kind of leads to other really bad stuff as it, it kind of gets misplaced and Greek society and Roman society are like romanticized and we want to like harken back to it. But in actuality, it's, it was not that great. We've kind of talked about this book for, you know, it was slavery. And, and for most people, opportunities were not great, especially in like Roman society, like people talk about manumission, but for most people, enslaved people, there was not a lot of opportunities for social mobility. So I guess just even within like the classics academia, I think we need to knock down the idea that like of the romanticization of this. And I guess just trying to build a more realistic understanding of what Greek and Roman society really was rather than this idealistic version of it. If I may push you a little further on that then, because that's a good answer, what do you think is the best solution? How do we deconstruct that? You know, what do you think would be a good solution? To be honest, I'm not really sure. I think classes like these definitely helps. And just having people who understand that this isn't 
hyper-realistic and really delving into it. I think learning about topics like these aren't always the most fun to learn about it. I mean, it can be quite painful because there's so much suffering and so much pain underlying kind of like this great, the, you know, what is termed this great society. But I think we just have to learn. And actually, I think someone in our class, I don't remember who, so I was talking about how classes like ours should be a major requirement for classics majors, because then you can kind of, at least then you're getting into like academia and at least you're forcing, not forcing, but well, yeah, actually forcing people who are going to be the teachers to have this background and understand that it is not a romanticization. Now, I don't necessarily know how we can help with the general society and help with people who just love Greek mythology or just love, you know, like love learning about it, but aren't going to actually go into it, how we can kind of stop that romanticization. But perhaps, I guess, maybe eventually, like as time goes, it'll kind of filter in, but perhaps that's also a bit too optimistic. I don't think it's unfair to say it's too unrealistic. You know, I want to push you one more time on this and say, I do like your suggestion of making it a major requirement. But also a lot of people out here say that, you know, by the time you get to university level, it's it's a bit too late because you're so far into your education. Do you think this is maybe not this class specifically, but is, you know, getting to kids earlier, maybe in high school? Do you think it's a maybe a good way to start educating people about the realities and you know there's a certain level of maybe reality you don't want to go into with with kids as young as high school but generally as an idea what do you think of that one I mean I didn't really learn about the classics themselves I think my extent of my knowledge was like I learned about uh, we did the odyssey in my English class shout out to Miss Mueller but I guess I think unless you're going to like a really more like okay this what comes to mind is like the boarding schools where you like learn latin and greek and so i think in that situation you definitely should be pushing it but in terms of like normal high schools i think you're not necessarily going to be learning about the classics at least in this way so i think perhaps you should be pushing now it'd be controversial but like critical race theory i think just our understanding of, of race and as like a societal mechanism so that you perhaps be more open when you come to college for like what is race and in the classics and the hard truths. But that's obviously can be quite controversial, but that's personally what I think. I appreciate you being brave and saying, oh, it's controversial and going anyways. Be okay with starting some spicier discussions here. Keep in mind, when you say things are controversial, it also depends on the context. Odds are there's a lot of things that might be controversial that every one of you here agree with. Shot in the dark, you're all young people, fair to say, and I'm going to assume that pretty much everyone here I'm talking to accepts that climate change is a real thing. If you feel otherwise, I'm happy to have a chat with you other afterwards. I think that we're all on the same page here. But is that a controversial topic in society? Certainly. But it doesn't mean we can't talk about it. And I think that's what I want to advocate for all of you is, especially when there's these controversial topics, now, in college, this is the perfect time to talk about those things. So any other folks who want to comment on that question three, technically, about deconstructing classics? What do you think needs to be knocked down or what do you think needs to be built anew or doesn't exist and needs to be built into the field? Joanne? In regards to this question, I think that if we were to deconstruct classics tomorrow, the first thing that we should knock down first would be word choice by translators since I feel like it's like such like a minuscule part of the text but I feel like it does, it makes a really big difference in shifting your perspective on groups of people I feel like even word choice such as using slaves over enslaved person also makes a really big deal because it chooses whether or not you give a human voice to this person or rather if you're calling them just an object as people would have in those ancient times. And even if those like enslaved people back then weren't, you know, Black or African, I still think the context in which we know enslaved people as nowadays, I think that would be influenced by how, by what exactly you're reading. So yeah. And Going off of that, the most important thing to build in you would be to have more inclusive and more, I guess, giving to like the hidden voices in that sense. Because 
we saw that like in the Odyssey, you can really see the relationship between like enslaved person and the enslaver. We know now that that was sort of like between Odysseus and his one of his like enslaved people. I forgot his name. You could tell that it was sort of like I guess quote unquote propaganda for like what a relationship between an enslaved person and an enslaver should be like. But by having an educated like word choice. And managing how you structure the narrative, I think it could save a lot of inherent biases towards enslaved people in that sense. Yeah, between Eumaeus and Odysseus. So now I'm curious, what translations did you read over the course of your semester? So for the Aeneid, we read Shadi Barch's translation of the Aeneid. And for the Odyssey, I believe it was Emily Wilson. Yeah, so Dr. Pandey, she made sure that the translations we read were like one of the more inclusive and overall sort of like encompassing of what classics should be like. Because I know that there are a lot of perhaps problematic translators out there who make certain word choices that like even with how they describe like women, it could be quite questionable. I really like where you're going with that. I think it would be really interesting problem with that is that we then would need a lot of more enlightened and obviously that takes a very long time and we have so many options already um i think in my undergrad years alone i used six or seven different translations of each work you know we would have to sort of start discarding some very long used translations obviously that could be a solution but it would take a lot of time because not only do we need to recruit new people to translate we have to have new people who want to indeed go do that rather than study what we currently have and try to find a new spin on that. So I like where you're going with it. I don't know how realistic it is or how we would do it, but if we can recruit a whole new generation to do new translations, I mean, I would be very, very excited. Very, very excited about that. I think it'll happen at some point in the future, hopefully. I think that the next best thing would to just be like reading those like translations with the word choice in mind and thinking about like whose voices are being covered up inherently just by this being said. There are several advantages to making the language requirement optional for future classics majors. It makes it more accessible as a field. You're not requiring people who have never seen Latin or Greek till the collegiate level. You're giving them a greater in, which I think is good. But it also means that if we have a whole new generation of people who are not taking either one or both of the languages, that also narrows the field of people who can be doing these translations in regards to what Dr. Peralta was saying. I want to connect that with your point about maybe getting different translations, you know. So what do you think about you know, the language requirement? Is that is making it optional going to help hinder, not really affect getting new translations out there? I think that's an excellent point that you bring up, but making Greek or Latin language requirement for classics, making that optional would open up a lot of, I guess, inclusivity in terms of the whole of the ancient Mediterranean, since I feel like there's a lot of different perspectives that we could be looking at, but we just don't since we're focusing on Greek and Latin literature. For example, even within the scope of this course, while we did look at a lot of different perspectives, most of them were written by Greek or Latin authors. And so I think there's a lot more things that we could be delving into. And by solely focusing on like the Greek and Roman perspective, we're limiting our ability to see the whole truth. Just like how MC said, like we could be getting closer to the historical truth, as complicated as it may be, but by focusing on the Greek and Latin perspective, we're we're limiting ourselves. Okay. So I saw a raised hand. I think that was from Malika. Do you want to go ahead and either answer the question or respond? I don't actually know what you were raising your hand for. So go ahead. The floor is yours. Yeah, so I just wanted to say really quickly, here at Johns Hopkins, our classics major requires you to take the languages, but the minor does not require that. So you can be a classics minor and not have to take any of the language classes. Interesting. That's an interesting decision. I'll have to think about the ramifications of that one. But anyway, I think we had some great answers there, and I obviously am very excited to get into them. So, okay, we have another raised hand. The floor is yours. Thanks. Yeah, I was just going to say that I think I've come to understand in the class that a lot of the issues with classics 
are not necessarily in classics themselves. Rather, they're kind of in the way that classics are used and the way they have historically been used and how those portrayals have kind of seeped into the larger idea of what classics are and, and who Greek, Greece and Rome were and who can you know, claim heritage to them. And so I would say one of the most important things in deconstructing the really negative aspects of classics would be to say that Greece and Rome aren't the heritage of Northern Europe any more than they're the heritage of Africa or of Asia or of anywhere on the world, right? Like Greece wasn't any more white than it was black or Asian or anything. So yeah, it's not necessarily a problem in, in classics itself. There's a lot of value in classics, right? I mean, we, we touched on a lot of different topics, including racial hierarchies, but in reading texts like the Iliad, we also discussed it as kind of, you know, known as the first anti-war epic, right? And we talked about some of the larger moral issues and, and empathy issues that it addresses. So there still is a lot of value in a lot of those texts. And yet the problem is sort of in the way it's been co-opted and appropriated by Nazi Germany, by white supremacists today to say, this is only the heritage of white people. And I think by dispelling that notion and by saying, actually, it's the heritage of anyone in the world, anyone who wants to claim that heritage can, I think that that breaks down a certain barrier some people might see. Some people might say, you know, this actually isn't my heritage because I'm not Northern European. I'm not, I'm not from the Mediterranean region, whatever. When in reality, that kind of has nothing to do with it. It's the heritage of everyone. I couldn't agree more, MZ. I mean, honestly, yeah, you you hit the nail right on the head. There are quite a few structural problems within classics itself, but yes, they're exacerbated because so many people are misappropriating these cultures and sort of claiming this weird ownership that they believe they have. And and yeah, these are pretty big problems. And I, I'm hoping that the field will be able to help present an answer. And I hope they'll speak up more forcefully in trying to kind of right the, the ship there, right? And not let so many people take advantage of it, but at this point also, it's got a lot of problems. So I don't know how much it can do to really focus on other people until it can take care of itself. You know, funding is obviously one of the biggest issues there, but we've gotten some really great answers, but I do unfortunately have to move us along for time. So I do want to go on to our fourth question, which is, should we focus more on deconstructing misconceptions or inaccurate depictions of the ancient world or on making new media that is more accurate slash that sort of gets it right. And again, we don't need everyone, but uh, a couple of answers would be great. So again, I will yield the floor to whoever wants to take this one. Yeah, so I'm Josue, and I was actually thinking about this question with the previous one, because like, at least my like experience with this class, it being like the first introduction to like the whole classics field, as I mentioned earlier, I really feel like the media that is present and that most people view such as like movies or tv shows or books there is like this misconception of just like how i guess white classics is and a really clear example that just always comes to mind is movies such as like hercules animated movies where it's like there's this glorious big buff person with a very light skin and like blonde flowing hair or like I also watched Troy before I had this class and those depictions of who these people were, like, I feel like it really does feed into the bias or just this misconception that like classics equals white. And a lot of the times we also just included white superiority in our analysis and how like white supremacist groups can try to grab on to classics and try to justify actions because of it. And so now answering the question, though, I think that creating new media would outweigh trying to deconstruct old presentations. And the reason why I say that is because I feel like if you try to deconstruct what people have already perceived for so long, I feel like it's really difficult. Like if someone were to come to me before I took this class and tell me like, oh, there's much more to the past than just Greek and Roman civilizations and that there was more. I feel like trying to explain it that way wouldn't have such a great impact as actually demonstrating it, you know, creating movies where you have more, I guess, get it right. And I would say like, just adding on to that, making more accurate claims and accurate presentations. I think that that would be very, very effective and it would just be accepted easily in the general population, such as students. I know we were talking earlier about like teenagers before going to college, watching movies, certain movies that created a little bit more accurately. I think that that would definitely help 
Issa up next, and then Abhishek will be after. So I do agree with Josue in that the best option would be to make new media, but I also think it is a good option to deconstruct inaccurate depictions of the classics world, especially those created by people with malicious intent. For example, white supremacists in the past and today that use Greco-Roman classics to, you know, justify white supremacy. And like the fact that they use biology or to justify the difference between minorities and this perfect white race that they think the Greeks and Romans were. I think it's very damaging because it kind of makes people opposed to classics because it doesn't really include them. In fact, it looks like it's opposed to them. Yes, I just wanted to add on to that. Um, Like, I also think that creating new media would be more beneficial than like trying to deconstruct misconceptions, though obviously deconstructing misconceptions from like the past would also be very useful. Because like, I think in new media, if we can like stop posing the white race as being purer or like more success, what white supremacists today like use from classics to basically justify like white supremacy. If we can like stop almost showing that and exemplifying that in media that represents the classics, then I think that would be like, basically that would be pretty beneficial in terms of increasing like diversity in classics. I agree with Josue and Issa. When I first read the question, I thought getting new media would help. But then diving deeper, I thought maybe focusing more on deconstruction, deconstructing misconceptions would be really beneficial just because informing people about what is right and if it if it opposes what they think it might come off as a threat whereas if we got to the root of it and like presented them with hey these are the facts and where we could figure out where hidden biases come from and where in people's journey they got the ideas from and starting there and saying these are the basics these are what we could inform you about rather than saying these, this is what's right and this is what's wrong and coming from the point of view like this is right and wrong might come off more harshly. Definitely and I think a common theme across all of this is that is there a right or wrong for a lot of these things? Some things are accurate, some things are not and some things are it depends on who you're talking to and just kind of a broader comment for all of this to keep in mind is that this all applies outside of classes too. Yes we have people in kind of fringe right circles that might be cherry-picking parts of Roman society using it for their purposes. And you'll see similar people do similar practices in completely different settings. Again, going to bring in a little bit of controversy here, but going to take some assumptions. Has everybody here been vaccinated? Yeah, uh, again, taking an assumption, but with that, you've also probably heard people who are anti-vaccine and who might cite a study or two. And it's usually the same study or two, because there's only a few data points that support those opinions. People will cherry-pick those, just like people are cherry-picking from the ancient world. And that kind of brings this question is, what's more important? Debunking the people who are spreading that misinformation, or trying to get accurate information out? And just to play devil's advocate, part of it depends on who is saying that message. We mentioned before the danger of a classics professor giving out wrong or limited information. Somebody giving wrong information about vaccines? Well, it depends. Is it your uncle after a few beers at Thanksgiving? Eh, probably harmless. Is your uncle in charge of a county or state health department? Well, then that changes. So keep it in mind the messages here. Those priorities can vary quite a bit, but the skills you're talking about right here and the importance of these interventions, it goes well beyond classics. And I know that many of you are not in classics. You don't plan to be doing history. Maybe you'll pick up a few more classes after this one. But a lot of these same things of people misinterpreting information, that's going to ring true wherever we go. So with our time here, we're going to go ahead and transition into the poem in just a moment. Oh, Lexi, did you have anything you wanted to add first? Only I would say to wrap everything up for this question, I love getting to hear what you guys think. There is a significant amount of back and forth. And as someone who was definitely in the middle of that field, and to some extent still am, I agree. I think new media is, is very much needed, but also keep in mind the constraints that not everyone has the time or the resources to be able to do new media. And so in that case, you know, the only thing we do have to fall back on is already created media. And there's also the problem of 
unfortunately, the stuff that's already created, a lot of it, like the Brad Pitt Troy or like the 300 movie, they're very popular. And it's going to be really hard if we do create something new to sort of outweigh that popularity. So I think it would be irresponsible not to try to go back and find new ways to go back and shed more more light on what we have. And that kind of goes to the argument where accuracy is important, but we have to realize that it's not everything as well, because this kind of hits in the heart of the debate over classics, which is how do we keep this field alive and going and modernized? How do we not lose people along the way? Because as someone stated earlier, it is quite boring if you're just sat down at a table and given massive book and say, okay, read this. It has all the accurate information. That's quite boring. And that's going to turn a lot of people off. So I think there are ways that we can use new modern technologies and other things that aren't inherently connected to TV film that we can try to address this problem. But you guys have raised a lot of really good points. And I think it's something that I hope a lot of other people will think about because it is a really pressing question and it will continue to affect people who are in the field and who plan to go into the field and who don't. So really great job on all those thoughts, guys. Great. What we're going to do next here is transition into that poem reading we talked about. Your name will be at the bottom of your line. So obviously, you'll be starting us off. When you're ready, you'll start us off with the first one. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies. Whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor will those passions read. Which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias. King of Kings. Look on my works, yea, mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay. Of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. The lone and level sands stretch far away. Thank you all for that. So with that, we're going to do a little bit of poem analysis. And don't worry, you don't have to be an English major. You all have thoughts on this, I'm sure. And like I said before, there's no wrong answers. In fact, we invite controversy here and screw at each other. You've all been very polite and very agreeable. So let's shake it up a bit. On the chat here, and the right first one here is going to be, how do you think that this poem has stood the test of time? And just for reference, uh, the poem was originally written in 1818 by Percy Shelley. And you may recognize the name. You've also heard of Mary Shelley, the inventor of science fiction, of Frankenstein. They work together, so... 
it's all connected there. So all the way from 1818, how has it stood up? And if you're unsure of maybe a definitive answer, you can also just give a reaction or even a question. For instance, how do you think it was received when it first came out? Go ahead. Okay, so I think this poem has stood the test of time because I feel like it's sort of meta because we see in the poem that it's like talking about a great king, like the strongest civilization ever, but here it lies in sand and it's in ruins and everything. But like you still see this shadow of like what was once great. And I think that could be seen in a lot of things nowadays. And I think in that sense, like the poem has set the test of time because it's like it itself is Ozymandias. People don't know about it, but like maybe some people do. It was once great, but maybe not so much anymore. Depends on how you see it. So I guess in sort of in that metaphysical sense, that's why. Totally valid. Thank you. How many of you have heard of this poem before today? We've got one. Some of you may have heard the name Ozymandias. You may have heard part of this. Similar to the poem, you hear something from somebody who traveled and saw it. Uh, but it has this outsized impact. So, uh, Seal, you had your hand up. Yeah, so basically, it seems this within the whole, like, fabric of classics and how we see, like, the historical context of, like, civilizations rising up and it falling. Like, we see a lot of reverence of different civilizations that we look up to to like previous civilizations that have fallen like the greeks looked at like the egyptians as like the precursors of their mighty civilization but they fell and then we see the romans look at the greeks as the mighty precursors of their civilization they rose and they fell and then we see a lot of other like like france britain germany looked at rome as precursors of their civilization rose and it fell even america so i think it just shows us that you know nothing's forever this great king of kings strong he was mighty he was big like greek egypt rome even the civilizations of today but it's just telling us nothing's going to be forever there's always going to be a rise an apex a climax like a fall i don't know if in a sense it's supposed to almost be kind of depressing in the sense of everything's going to wither away everything's going to decay or if it's like in a sense it can be comforting in a way we know the natural route of things so we know what's going to happen might as well just live in the glory days of where ozymandias was that's kind of how i think of it well then daniel go ahead i think the modern ozymandias i think there's so many people especially in politics that are pretty desperate to leave their hand on the world like leave an impact in some way i mean we just saw this over the summer with the roe v wade a, lot, a bunch of old people that wanted to change things so drastically on their way out. But like this poem, like none of it's going to last. I mean, Donald Trump did all these things and in a couple of years, all that's left, is going to be Mar-a-Lago. I just think that so many people try to be remembered by doing everything they can to be remembered. One thing is I want to chime in and say, for those of you who are unaware of this poem before, Ozymandias is really basically the Greek name for Ramesses II who did preside over one of the most expansive, rich, and successful empires in the world at at the time. So, you know, this really is kind of a statement. I would also say that in looking at this poem, I think you guys are getting really close to the way I myself would interpret it. The one thing I want to add is that everything was political even back then. So when Shelley was writing this, it was kind of like a short political statement for him to make. Yeah, what you guys were feeling, it's basically a 14-line memento mori. I don't know if you talked about those in your class, but that's basically a remember remember that you will die. So, yeah, I think that, you know, it's political. We have this sense of vastness. Is it a message saying that as humans, do we try to build monumental legacy because we think that's what's going to stick? Or is it a reminder that you can build monumental legacy and try to be the one person ruling over this empire, but you can't do it alone. You need other people. And if you do try to go at alone, you're going to fail. So there's that duality that I love. And so that kind of ties in with the second question that we have for you guys, which is, is there like a modern equivalent of an Ozymandias? This is a question that I ask on my podcast. So all these professors and grad PhD students I've talked to, they all are confronted with the same question I'm asking you guys to think about. Through the course of the show, we've had a lot of great answers. The nice thing is that there's no right or wrong answer. 
But the kind of frame of mind I want you guys in when thinking about this is, is there something right now currently that we believe will be here, say, if it lasts the test of time, is it going to be here in a couple hundred years, 500 years, let's say, or would this be the kind of thing that future humans look back and say, well, these people were just crazy. I don't know why they were doing that. That's ridiculous. So that's kind of the frame of mind I want you guys to be in when you think about this question. Um, This is Josue. And I think actually rather most of us here are like pre-med or like STEM uh, field oriented. I really believe that science can be interpreted as an Ozymandias because I feel like I think present day, we often like to look back at previous scientific thought and then we kind of doubt it. We say, how could people think that way? You know, we look at like racial science, right? Where people would measure like cranial size. People were trying to look at genetic theories. We saw a lot of trying to like reason biologically or like physiological characteristics. And now we say like, how could people think that way? You know, that's just one example, but I do believe that we don't want to label Ozymandias as a person or as like a group of people. I think that just like throwing that idea out there, I think science actually might be or the figure. So, yeah. Hello, this is Sul. I actually really like what Hosui just said because it's interesting how we revere these these geniuses in ancient times, like Aristotle, for instance, like in his book, The Minor Works, like there was a chapter called, I believe, it's like physiognomics. I believe that it was the art of like prescribing personality traits based on like outward appearance. It was funny because there was like, he talked about how like the ears that are sloped back and like dogs can say whether or not they're like nice or mean dogs or like, and there was a quote, he was talking about like the Ethiopians and like Egyptians. It was like, those who are too swarthy are cowards and whatnot. So it's interesting how like we revere these people from back then who, you know, are otherwise very smart geniuses and whatnot. But they also had these these like pseudoscientific notions within their literature that we also see. So I think it also can go into like the idea of the decay of whether or not we see how these people's ideas stand the test of time as well, just like how this poem might as well. Great. Well, just for the sake of time, I want to move on to our final question, which is since most of you are not in classics, how do you think classics affects your field of study? Or if you're in classics, how do other fields affect you? So I feel like as like hopefully a future doctor, having a greater understanding of race and like difference in diversity, I think it will give me, I guess, like a better perspective and a better understanding of how healthcare itself is influenced by race as we know it's like like healthcare is very like it can be very disadvantageous to um, minority populations in this country for example with black and hispanic women not being able to choose whether or not they get a c-section when they're giving birth and so the classics and i guess healthcare aren't necessarily it's not explicit in their connection i feel like when it comes to just understanding race in this country. I think it'll help me understand just like the people that I'll be treating and how there's various systems within this country that will just work against them. And while there may not be legally things that I can do to like counteract that, just understanding that will, will, it will help me just understand my patients better. And I just want to touch back on you, Joanna. You mentioned nothing you can do legally which I think was an interesting point. Uh, now, I'm not advocating you, you know, flip tables and turn up the whole medical institution. But what are maybe some things you think you could do? I think I could definitely advocate for those voices since there's only so much that I could do as like one person. But if enough people like talk about it or shed light on it, then I think there's a lot of changes that we could make within healthcare. I'm certainly looking forward to them. So a lot of changes are needed. And just to touch on our other question, there's a lot of different ways you can do this. It can be as simple as, uh, you know, calling somebody out if they're saying something that's just wrong or biased. It can also be building coalitions with other people instead of maybe directly targeting the misinformation and say, who else here has had these diverse perspectives or has seen things go in this different way and build up from that way? And both are valid. All right. Well, it seems like people have 
classes and other things. So I just want to thank you all for joining us on this podcast. I know it's going to turn out great. And I've loved having you guys share what you've learned about the class and to learn a little bit about you guys and what you think about these uh, important issues facing facing the field of classics. Well, thank you all again. Uh, if you do have any other comments, please let us know. Uh, but also if you have any questions for either of us, it can be based on the class, history, classics, or anything else that might be at the house. Yeah, we love questions. Definitely ask us. <laughs> um, I would just like to agree with Joanne. I think going into also pre-med, learning about the past makes you like a well-rounded person and more informed so that when you are dealing, patients are talking to people, you just have a broader narrative and you could bring more to the conversation about these very controversial topics. When I was an undergrad, my favorite professor had a murder mayhem and images of justice in the ancient world class. And it focused on like recreating and staging ancient political debates that would result in exiling people. So uh, we would kind of get into groups and and then present our arguments and, and see if we could persuade people to exile a, a classmate. So there's just so much good material there. And I, I think it would be a really fun path to double major. Yeah, I'm taking a class next semester that's uh, ancient political theory. So that I'm really excited about that. You get to really like Plato and I'm pretty excited. <laughs> it seems like a good mesh between the two. And those plug in really nice with a lot of different disciplines too. I picked up a poli-sci major myself my junior year uh, and my background in psychology. So there's connections, but there's a lot of different angles you can take to it. And I will say, if you're curious about some of these topics, um, I'll get in our little soapbox here and say, uh, Lexi and I actually know each other from doing model you know, donations conferences. I'm in Model UN. Look at that. There we go. I, I was going to say, it might be a good fit for you. Not even just the interdisciplinary classes you'll get from classics for all the humanities credits, but I mean, the language, I can't tell you how cool it is. If you take any Latin classes, that'll come in handy. You know, okay, maybe it's not as immediately apparent as going into, you know, being a lawyer or doctor, but I swear there's a ton of Latin phrases and like old arcane things that they use in politics. It's really fun if you know some Latin, then you'll be like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what they're saying. I really want to learn. It's, it's kind of funny because I really want to learn French, Italian and Latin, which are like the top languages spoken in the Vatican. So which is kind of a laughable concept. So I could be the Jewish scholar at the, the Vatican because I know all the languages. Hopefully I will know all the languages. Hey, that's pretty good. I mean, you know, I come from a Jewish family as well. So, you know, when I told my parents that I'd rather learn like Latin and not Hebrew, they were a bit disappointed, I must confess, but they were like, hey, you do you. Never looked back. So guess it worked out. My dad, I believe he said, I was like, oh, like I really like the classics. And he was like, well, why don't you take that econ class? And I was like, I'm not, I'm not sure about that decision that's going to be a no for me <laughs> well why don't you see if you can take an ancient economy class and then you can tell your dad i'm taking econ dad it's just ancient oh this is this is helpful right this is what you wanted me to do or exactly ancient economies man they do offer quite a roadmap for future so it actually would be quite handy and helpful i'll have to consult the registrar I mean, I could sit here all day and talk about the different overlaps that the ancient world has with modern stuff. So you might as well stop me now. But yeah, you'll find there's hopefully a lot of very good options. And I don't know much about the uh, Hopkins Classics Department, but I do know a couple of people who are there. So it sounds like there's a pretty rich course offering, just depending on what year and what semester they roll around. Yeah. The one thing we have to, of course, uh, say, we forgot to say the rest of the class, please. Go to your professor's office hours. Yeah, no, uh, I go to them a lot. They're like, just being around them is kind of insane. They're all so, like all of my professors are just so smart. And so just being around them and like trying to, I like try to like be a sponge and just pick up all their knowledge. And yeah. <laughs> so that's a good strategy. You're being a good student. I myself lived in my professor's office hours. And you know what? Eventually you'll get more than just one-on-one -on -one time to have a conversation. And then at one point, my professor just asked me if I'd like to go get grab a coffee. And I was like, sure. Actually, in our uh, class, she would bring in like all these different foods from like events. She'd be like, this needs to be eaten. And so she'd just bring in like sandwiches and people would be like, okay, like we'll eat this for you. <laughs> As a professor myself, I can't say how helpful it is when students ask me questions. That's why I hound them to do so. It's those questions and answers. That's how I build all of my lectures and slide decks and assignments. It's what are people grappling with? If it's not relevant to y'all, 
what's the point? I'm doing it for you anyways. Yeah. So I could say somebody had this question. This is why we're talking about it. Probably heard this before, but odds are if you have a question, several other people in the class are also thinking that. Yeah, they're just too scared to speak up. <laughs> a lot of classes here are like pretty small. This is still my first semester, so I've only taken still not too much, but it's been a lot of fun so far. In the arts and sciences, you can't declare until the end of your freshman year. Huh, that's really smart. I like that. <laughs> and you've probably heard from a lot of people, oh, go find what you love and, and pursue that. Say, if you know what that is, great. So it doesn't always have to be, oh, chasing your dreams and you'll never work a day in your life. But you'll know what you dislike even if you don't know what you do like. Yeah, work backwards. It's really helpful. Uh, can start with physics, can work down from there. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I mean, it's been really fun. You know, we love connecting with students. If you want to get in touch with either of us, you can email us. I Feel free to send us questions if you ever have, you know, want advice or whatever. We're always monitoring that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.